Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Lenz Moser is a fifth-generation Austrian winemaker who's every bit as dynamic as his famous grandfather, also called Lenz. We caught up to chat about his love of Grüner Veltliner and how he's planning to promote it worldwide through his new joint venture with Marcus Huber, his Chinese project in Ninja, his decision not to own a car or a television set, and how getting older is teaching him patience. Hello, Lenz. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Um, lovely, lovely, lovely to be talking to you. Just tell us where you are at the moment, because you're such a man of the world. You know, is it China? Is it Germany? Is it the States? Or are you back in Austria? I'm back in Austria, uh, staying at my at my wife's house uh, in, in, in the Burgenland in Frauenkirchen. Ah, fantastic. Because you were in Vienna for a bit, weren't you? You'd, you'd moved back to Vienna? Yes, yes. I moved back to Vienna, you know, where love falls. But uh, before the lockdown, we, we moved to the Burgenland, which was a blessing. Yeah. So you weren't in a big city during lockdown? Absolutely. This was, was pure luck. Yeah. I mean, did, did, tell us a little bit about your family, because, I mean, your, your history is amazing. Your family's been in Austria, obviously, for a very long time, but involved in wine since, I think, 1610. Um, what's your earliest memory of wine? Were you, were you kind of born drinking wine almost? Um, well, not, not quite, but uh, I, I came in touch with wine very early because um, uh, when you're a single child or the only child with four sisters... Um, your father bets on you, so he he really tried to 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 get me into wine very very early. And I recall uh, a luncheon together with a Japanese guy from Mercian, who is a big, which was at the time a big private winery in in Japan, and they were tasting Chateau Ikem, and that's how he caught me because it was sweet, it was good, and I loved it from the beginning. And how old were you then? Ten. I was ten, ten right. years old. <laughs> okay. <laughs> they start them early in Austria. I mean, so yeah. there was never never a chance you were going to choose another career, right? Uh, well, uh, actually not, because my grandfather, I think he really did the trick, because um, he would come to the house of my parents uh, every other, other Saturday, and he would bring me to the vineyards, and he would excite me about Mother Nature, the vineyards, the vines themselves, hmm. at the very early early stage. So I, I just, I didn't really have a chance. And as I said, you know, being the only boy in the family of five kids, that did the other trick. But there was a, a phase in, in, in early 80s when I had a girlfriend and she, her father was uh, the owner of Fisher Ski and I was a skier. Uh, of course, every Austrian is a skier. Hmm. And um, so um, for a couple of months, I thought, well, this could be a very lucrative job because this guy had only daughters as well. So he was really courting me. But at the end, you know, my father succeeded. Why? I mean, your, your grandfather was a very distinguished professor, wasn't he, of, of viticulture? And there was a, a vine trellising system still bears his name. Your dad introduced biodynamic viticulture to Austria in the 70s. Have you inherited something of that pioneering spirit? Because you're quite a pioneer too, aren't you? 
Yeah, that's for others to judge, but uh, I'm I'm not an administrator of, of any business. I need to build something and I need to, to do something uh, which is new. And, and I started very early in my career of, of, of doing things which were out of the ordinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, uh, when I joined Lenz Moser Winery, uh, my father's winery at the time, um, I, I just came back from, from California uh, having a stage at Robert Mondavi. And he was into this varietal things. And when you think of the, of the mid-80s, in Austria, there was only brands like Alta Knabe, like Roter Storch and so on, and or or village names like Langenloiser, Kumpolskirchen and all these names. And I thought uh, Bob Mondavi had this great idea of, of bringing varietals, you know, his company, Sauvignon's Merlot, Sauvignon Blancs and so on. Um, and then I, I was the first one to launch a varietal range in Austria at all. And also the first one to launch Grüner Vetlina at the time already, which was a mass product producing uh, grape and mm. was not on labels at the time. So, so Grüner Vetlina was drunk where? In Heuriger, like bars and Absolutely, and, and pubs, absolutely. Really? but it was never called Grüner. It yeah. was, in, uh, you know, disguised by either a brand or, or a region's name or a village name or a city name. Um, because it, it, it was it was the cheap stuff. It was the, you yeah. know, the very low on the end of the scale. Yeah. I mean, when you were 18, it's interesting that before we come back to Gruner, you went to stay in Bordeaux, uh, Chateau Kirwan, and you've had this lifelong passion for Cabernet Sauvignon. We'll talk about that later too. I mean, how else did Bordeaux affect your outlook, really, on, on, on the world of red wine? Well, uh, Bordeaux... Uh, always was something special for me because it was the first major wine region outside of Austria my father introduced me to. He was a big fr- a friend of the Schröder and Schüler family mm. of Chateau Kirmont. Mm. And um, I, I got there very early. I, I made friends with Sophie and Jan and, and, and the kids there. And so I got to know this wonderful beverage, uh, the red Bordeaux in particular. Mm. Now I also like the whites. But uh, ever since, um, Red Bordeaux was always my benchmark in whatever I did, be it red wine in Austria, be it mm. red wine somewhere else, and then, of course, in China. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, you went on to do a degree in enology. Obviously, you're a trained winemaker, and you worked for the family business for five years. Then you left. You had this connection already with Mondavi, didn't you? You set up Robert Mondavi Europe. Just tell us, what did that entail? Was it, was it sort of acquisitions? Uh, of other places in Europe, or were you admin- doing administration of his estates? What were you doing exactly? No, well, I, I got really lucky because I was I was <clears throat> playing in the national league in Austria when we do the analogy with football mm. uh, and running Lenzmoser Winery, which was great. Uh, I was mm. a local hero, the largest mm. winery in the country. But um, when Michael Mondavi called me in September '97, uh, a new world, a new door opened mm. uh, to my wine world which I call the Champions League. And, and they got me into their system uh, because Michael said, we know each other for, for you know, 15 years. So why don't you run our European business? Yeah. Uh, there was no business, of course. So I had to start <laughs> it. You know, it's the thing, you know, the first playing the fiddle. But I really liked it and I was really honored. And within two weeks, I made a decision together with my wife um, to, to, to take the job. Uh, it was almost 10 years. And I was basically building their business in Europe which was relatively easy. Mm. Uh, believe me, when you had Mondavi on your business card mm. at this particular time in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, we thought we were great. And I think the team was great. We built the team of 50 people and, and turned over 6 million bottles in the last year of our existence of Mondavi Europe. But mm. uh, it was the brand, it was the family who made this possible. Interesting. I mean, what did you learn from him? And I read somewhere that he just said to you, 
this great line. I mean, I'm, forgive me for swearing, but he said, just fucking do it, right? So, I mean, because he, he set up the winery when he was 55, didn't he? I mean, he was old by, by wine standards, right? Absolutely. By, especially at that time, he was really old already. Mm. But uh, I think there's a couple of things. But the JFDI approach, mm. um, it, it was the, the, the last line he told me in 2005 when I introduced a new project to him in California. We went out, went to Briggs in, in, in Oakville, and had dinner there, and and he rolled down the window at, at eleven o'clock at night, which in Napa is you know is very very late. And he said, you know, you know, you have this new project, you know, JFDI. You know, I, I won't say it, but uh, <laughs> that, that was certainly something. But also, I think he 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 gave me this this California spirit, which I really embraced. To the max, like coming from Austria, Austrians complain a lot and, yeah. and tell people why it's not working. And he gave me this idea, this notion of this positive approach of, yes, you can, Mr. Obama would have said, but yeah. it, it's that similar sort of spirit. And, and a, a lot of other things which, which led to a very positive lifestyle. I always was positive, don't get me wrong. But at the end of the day, uh, he, he, he was one of my greatest mentors in, 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 in living a happier life. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. I mean, talking about problems, I mean, I think we probably better mention this quickly. But uh, you know, you you lived through the Deathling Glycol scandal of the mid '80s. Um, do you think, looking back, that was a positive thing for Austria? Did it make people think, "Hey, you know, we've got to do something about this"? Um, I only can say it was overdue, and Austria managed it very, very well with the toughest mm. wine law at the time. So I tend to think this was a very, very positive happening. And I was young. Um, I, I had a dream uh, of quality. I had a dream of premium. And that really was exactly opposite what happened in Austria. So mm. for me, in my personal career, it was, was very, very uh, uh, positive. And, and quite frankly, in this period of, let's say, 12, 18 months, mm. I, I was on the steepest learning curve in my entire life. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, you've mentioned Gruner that you were starting to get interesting, really, since since the eighties. Um, tell us a bit more about Gruner. What, what makes it so distinctive in the vineyard and the cellar? I mean, we'll talk more about how you're looking to promote it now around the world. But you know, Gruner's an amazing grape, isn't it? But what makes it so special? Uh, for me, it makes it very special because basically, my grandfather uh, discovered. Gruner in Austria in the in the early 20s and 30s of, of last century uh, because he was looking for a, a good grape for his new trellising system. And ah. he found Zweigelt, the red yeah. one on, on, on the red wine side, and certainly Gruner. And since he had a nursery as well uh, with um, millions of, of, of little wines sold every year, he really put a lot of emphasis on Austria. And he took uh, a Gruner from less than 1% to when he died, we had almost a 30% Gruner, uh, Gruner acreage in Austria. And I think that's one of, wow. of, of, of the things I admired him because he was stubborn he, ah. and he did it. Yeah. And uh, Gruner now is, is a fact in Austria. So Gruner grew because of his trellising system in a yes, way. Yes, absolutely. This is, this is without any doubt. I mean, if you go back, uh, and Gruner is relatively new, and, and Gruner was big already, but nobody put it on the label because uh, at the time, uh, Gruner was always overcropping. Uh, you yeah. know, you could you could get from Gruner 30 tons a, a hectare, which is yeah. obscene. You know, then yeah. the, the yeah. law cut us down to, to about a 10,000 kilogram a hectare, mm. which equals 10,000 bottles, which I think is, is mm. enough. 
uh, especially enough to make quality. And, and now it gives us the right concentration uh, for the world market in a very, very mm. good sense. Mm. I mean, why isn't it better known around the world? I mean, you know, do you think, I think you do believe it's as great a grape as Riesling or Chardonnay in its way? Well, I, to compete with Chardonnay and Riesling is tough, quite frankly, especially mm. with German Riesling, which I love a lot. Uh, so that's, that's really tough. But I think it's, it's um, 95% of Grüner is, is consumed in the German-speaking world. Mm. Uh, and that's why I'm particularly interested uh, to do something about it. And uh, uh, we did a, a lot of research uh, two years ago uh, before launching an Austrian project with Grüner. And uh, we interviewed about 200 people, customers, journalists around the world mm. and friends. And they basically, it boils down to two things. First, Grüner was not good enough and Grüner mm. was too cheap because mm. um, when you look at the statistics, Grüner rarely sells above five euros exceller. Mm. And that means you cannot produce quality. And this is something we, we embraced. So we, we, we came up with a new style of Grüner, with a new quality of Grüner mm. and also a new label uh, in order to make it attractive for, for, for the consumer. I and mean, you've called that new chapter, haven't you? Yes. Uh, and you're working together with a, a very talented young winemaker, one of the best in Austria. Um, he's even younger than you, uh, Marcus yeah, Huber. He could be <laughs> my son. He could be my son. <laughs> Marcus Huber, lovely guy, lovely family. Oh. Just tell us how you got to know him. And have you known him for a long time? I've known him for 15 years. Uh, he's been always a friend of mine, not a close friend. But now we are very, very close because the last two and a half years we, we've stuck together. Um, because he called me during the first lockdown uh, in, in Austria and he said, Lenz, I have a little bit of time. Why don't you come and see me? And, you know, over a glass of wine, a lot of things can happen. And it turns out that he wanted to do a project with me, but he had no idea. He just was tapping my experience into my experience and, and my knowledge of the world market. And it took us a, a few rounds of, of talks. And then we came up with, with an idea because I said, if I'm going to start Brunner again in my life, hmm. because I've done uh, two big uh, projects before. You did something called GV, didn't you? It was yes, amazing. GV, with, yeah. with that incredible label and everything. Your purple was purple, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So we said, let, let's be dramatic. Mm. Uh, and, and, and that's what we did it, 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 mm. in the end. Mm. And, and, and hence new chapter. That was what yes. the name was about. Chapter, it's a new chapter for Marcus and myself. It's a new yeah. chapter for Gruner and it's a new chapter for Austrian wine. We believe it needed such a project and hopefully mm. other people will follow because when we say tomorrow's Gruner today, then it's something we, we introduced uh, to the world where, where they can see the difference, what we have in mind. And where do you source the grapes from? Are they Huber grapes? They are entirely Huber grapes. Mm. Um, Marcus controls about 120 hectares, mm. uh, 60 of which is, is his own vineyard, 60 rented. Mm. But uh, in 2021, um, our wine is 100% from his own sites which I'm particularly proud because we I'm able to choose with him the best sites. It's about 15 different parcels. Mm. And then we, we start blending it to, in, according to our style. So the idea is to make a kind of Grand Cru Gruner in a sense, is Absolutely. It? But it's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's not a vineyard designate. It's, it's, a, it's like a Chateau principle. So we yeah. take the best out of his vineyards and, and, and form a cuvee. Uh, and call it new chapter, and it's 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 our Gruner, it's our stamp on Gruner, if you yeah. like. Yeah, 
I mean, I've read somewhere that you said that you all had almost to forget everything you knew about Gruner. And you know, it's got this long history with your family. I didn't know quite how long and that your grandfather was so involved with it and start all over again. How easy is it to do that? I mean, you, you know, you're quite good at doing that, I think, aren't you? You know, you're you're you're, you're quite innovative. And, and I think you, you have a vision of the way things could be in the future. But how easy was it to do that? Well, I if if I have something in my mind, I I I tend to think out of the box because that's another Robert Mundavi word, mm. you know, think outside the box. And um, then I start tasting what is successful around the world, which is very, very important for me because I'm a marketeer as well. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit crazy sometimes, but I, at the end of the day, <laughs> no, I'm a not. business guy. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I want not just to drink my own wine, I want to sell it. Yeah. And um, so when we started together with Marcus, we had no idea. So we started basically tasting each and every major wine between 20 and 100 euros on the world market. It must have been 500 wines in this particular year. And uh, in order to see what's out there and what is required to be successful in the market. Mm. Exactly. And, and just tell us a little about the style. What do you do? Is it oaked? Is it unoaked? Are you using malolactic? Or just tell us a little oh. bit about the style of it. <laughs> no malolactic at all. Mm. Uh, we want this vibrancy. Uh, but um, we use about 10% wood mm -hmm. uh, from different sources of wood in order to, to go for, for harmony. Yeah. Uh, we want to have a friendly, harmonious uh, wine, which has the credentials of Grüner, but maybe a little bit more soft. And I don't go too peppery. I don't mm -hmm. go too spicy. Mm -hmm. We want to have a very, very elegant wine with a lot of substance, with a lot of character, but also easy to drink. This is the most important thing. And is, is Gruner a great variety that expresses terroir, soil type, in, in, your, yes, in your opinion? Yeah. definitely. So if you only have Lus or clay Gruner, uh, like on the Wagram in Austria, it tastes completely different, uh, say, if you go to, to the Wachau Valley, where you have mm. completely different, different um, not just climate, but also soils. And those, then very the steep, those very steep slopes on the Danube, yeah? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, I just uh, visited Hitzberger last week mm. uh, at Wachauer Weinfrühling, and you could really see this minerality mm -hmm. there. Uh, but I think this is even topped by Marcus's wines because the Chaisenthal, where we make our wine, is 100% limestone. Yeah. And that's where we get the elegance from. That's why I like this region so much. And it's also east slope, east patient pacing slopes, a little yeah. bit like Burgundy. Um, and that gives us uh, an advantage when, when it comes to global warming. Uh, interesting. So there's slightly cooler sites. Absolutely, yeah. 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 I mean, I could talk to you about Gruner all day, but we need to talk about China as well, because I'm yeah. fascinated by what you've got up to in China. Just tell us when you first went there, what attracted you to the country and, and how the project's grown? Because it started small and then it became this joint venture, didn't it? Yeah. Well, um, uh, first of all, it's, it's, China is a lot of work. Hmm. China is really a piece of work because it's so different from us and, and you've been there. So it's, hmm. it's, it's different, but this is exactly what really attracted me, attracted hmm. me, uh, back in 2005 already. I just wanted to go there and check it out myself. I've heard something, uh, something's going on, not too specific because there wasn't too much literature about China at the time. And, um, I, I went on a really long learning curve for about 10 years from five, uh, to 15, um, and, and then we had this famous conversation with the bosses of Chang'e and we were shouting at, at each other because we <laughs> knew each other. I mean, you know, a, a, a Zoom call not, but it was, it was over the phone. Uh, but I could really hear them breathing uh, of anger in myself as well. But 
Mr. Joe is a very, very wise man. He, he is the chairman of the company. And he said, let's please stop complaining. Make your own wine. Because he remembered that I was a winemaker too. And mm -hmm. that really started the whole thing. I went to from from Big Changyu in Yantai, the headquarter, to, to a small chateau, mm -hmm. uh, Chateau Changyu Mosa 15, mm -hmm. bearing my name as well, which was, uh, was a goodie from their side. And I started to make it right. I was really hands-on. So I, in, in 15, uh, in the summer, I went there and stayed until the harvest for, for three months in one piece. So I explored the region for, for, for a month to see what's going on because making mm. wine in a desert is dif difficult mm. and different from, from where I made wine. Mm. Uh, I made the wine and I also made the concept, the label and everything, strategy in the three months. Uh, and then I went on to, to, to market the wines. So you were making wines for the Changyu group, really, uh, from different regions, were you? Yes, I, no, I, basically, they gave me some wines to blend, to be yeah. honest. Uh, and I had, had some wines, but I, I didn't have any a say in, in how the mine, wine was made. Yeah. And at the time, this was not the greatest stuff to blend with. And there's, yeah. only, there, there's limits to blending, as you know. Yeah. Um, but then there was no more excuse because I made my, my own wine and I could blend my own blends, and, and that really did the trick. Yeah, and it's interesting because Chateau Changyu Mosa 15, as it's called, um, is based in Nincha. Yeah, I think I've got the pronunciation right. My Chinese yeah. is not very good. Um, but, I mean, Nincha, every time I have a wine from Nincha, I think, oh, this is interesting. And it's kind of emerging as the best region, I think, certainly for red wines, but also maybe for whites in China. Just tell us a little bit about it. You know, you had these three months there, so you were exploring it. What makes it special? Well, it's, it's, um, we were lucky and it was a shot in the dark because we decided in 2009 already to go Ningxia with mm -hmm. this particular chateau. I had only a marketing contract at the time, no idea that I would be making wine six years later, but I was lucky. And, you know, luck <laughs> plays, plays a, a role in life. Yeah. But uh, what, what, the region, what makes the region special is the spirit of the people there. Mm. Uh, winemaking is led by ladies. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to say my main competition in Ningxia is 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 female. I mean, take uh, Crazy Farm from Kenan, take uh, you know Emma Gao from from Silver Heights, take Jing from uh, Helen Jinchui, and so on mm. and so forth. Also others. So there's a lot of ladies there, and they tend to make very very friendly wines and not these macho uh, mm. tannic wines, which mm. were the dominance of China. And then, of course, uh, climate makes it possible. And to cut the long story short, I, I picked the region in 2009 already because I saw the smallest Cabernet Sauvignon berries in my life. Mm. And, you know, with these berries, you can do whatever you want, mm. provided you get them ripe and the seeds are brown, mm. uh, then everything's fine. So this is the essence of, of, of Ningxia, the small berries. I mean, it's quite extreme, isn't it? I mean, it's pretty close to Mongolia. Yes. And you get these very, very cold winters where you have to bury the vines. Isn't that right? Because it's so cold Absolutely. and the frost risk is so bad that you have to bury the vines each time. Is that this true? It's the only downside in, in the mm. paradise. So <laughs> we have four months. Yeah, it's, it's a winemaking paradise because at 1,100 meters altitude, you have hot days, but you have these cool nights which mm. preserve the acidity. Even in reds, you need the freshness. Mm. I mean... Uh, look at France and, and, yeah. and Bordeaux in particular. So uh, that's the only thing. Uh, but um, we we preserve and we we make sure that the 25, 20 degrees Celsius frost don't harm the the, the, the vines. Hmm. Um, and at the chateau, we do something special because uh, come the winter, we even flood the vineyards. So we make a giant ice cube, uh, a giant ice cube, 
in order to, to, to freeze everything has the big advantage when, when, it, when it melts in the spring, we have enough water already. So we have bud break in, in about a week from, from unburying the vines. So the vines are underwater or rather under yes. ice, are they? They're buried in ice. It sinks in, ice cube, no, no sweat. It really works, I tell you. Wow. We have enough water from, from the Himalayas. So the Yellow River may through. So as yeah. long as we have enough water, we can do this. I mean, what would your grandfather have made of that, the great professor? He'd have been amazed, wouldn't he? He would have been happy, I tell you. <laughs> and by the way, he invented this bearing, the, the, the vineyards, because he was doing, uh, in his um, later stages, he was always um, invited by the Comic-Con countries, the Russia, I mean, mm -hmm. Soviet Union in particular, and he made wine there, and they had to bury the wines as well. So he, he came up with the technique of, of, of growing the vineyards not upright, but mm. 45 degrees, because then you can bend them down. So that mm. goes back to my grandfather as well. But you did it in a different way. So you're burying them in water, already in ice. No, 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 no. no well, yes, we, we, we bury them in, 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 in dirt, Yeah. Um, plow, plow everything in, make it plain, yeah. and then we water. Okay. Yeah. So does that doesn't damage the vine? Not at all. Not at all. It, it, it's because ice um, is, is much warmer than frost outside. Yeah. You get maximum minus 10, and that's no problem then. Yeah, in, in, interesting. I mean, Cabernet Sauvignon is your focus. You've mentioned these tiny berries you got there. How many different wines and styles do you make? Because there's at least one white Cabernet, isn't there, I think? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's a cool story because I think I'm the only winemaker who makes red, white, and rosé from one grape variety because that's all I'm playing with. That's Cabernet all you got, Sauvignon. right? That's all. That's all, okay. yeah. We have uh, Merlot vineyards and, and some uh, Marcelin vineyards now in Syrah, but they are too young to make it to the blends mm. yet. They're mm. brand new vineyards. So uh, we make basically uh, red wine non-barrique, so only stainless steel, which mm. really gives you the, the flavor of Ningxia, the spice mm. of Ningxia in China. Then we have uh, one wine which is aged for two years in used barrels, all French oak. And then we have the Grava and Purple Air comes from the East, um, which are purely French oak, purely new oak. And then two white Cabernets? Yes, two white Cabernets. Uh, <laughs> and one rosé. In my first year, I was looking for white wine vineyards. Um, I did not know that they, they, had, they didn't have anything. I thought, yeah. that, well, they would have some, some Chardonnay at least. But Zilch, there was nothing. Um, so in the first year I was desperate. In the second year I came up with the idea of making a white Cabernet Sauvignon, and and they said, yeah, let's do it because never done before. You know, with the small berries, forget it. There's too much color. Um, but I was lucky um, because um, we were sort of not doing the rosé thing because rosé would give you too much color. So mm. we we had two hoses from the crusher, mm. one going to directly to the white wine tank because when when you crush. For the first 20 minutes, you have green juice, but mm. then all of a sudden it comes a tipping point and then it turns almost immediately to red. Mm. So when you work quickly after the crusher, it's, it's possible. Mm. And hence, uh, we are doing now the stainless steel, white carbon is over your end, uh, barrique aged as well, which mm. is tons of fun. Mm. I mean, I've read somewhere you were thinking of planting Grüner leader in China. Is that true? Uh. It's my big dream. <laughs> this is, I, I, Tim, I can tell you this is a nightmare. Uh, COVID really has slowed us down because, you know, out of mind, out of sight, out of mind. So I could not do this when I'm not there. So for the last yeah. two and a half years, I haven't been to China. Yeah. Everything is tele, tele yeah. winemaking and everything. It's a little bit exhausting. Yeah. But I can say the team has learned a lot in the five years I have been making wine with them. So everything's good, but Gruner has to wait. 
Yeah. Okay. But, but, but one day soon, we hope. Yeah, I don't give up. Don't worry. <laughs> I know that. You no, know. No. I mean, you mentioned your top wine, which is called Purple Air Comes from the East. Can you just explain the name to us? Why is it called that? In 2015, um, I did a speech in Qingdao, you know, Qingdao, where the beer comes mm-hmm. from, uh, to a crowd of 300 people. And at the end, an old man stands up and said, hey, I liked your speech. Hmm? He spoke English, by the way, which is rare. It was rare at the time. And uh, he said, I, would, I, I have a gift for you. Come with me. I'm a calligrapher. Come to my studio and I'll do, do you something. On the way, he asked me, well, what, what is your, your favorite color? And I said, purple. No, no surprise. And he said, I have exactly the right, right words for you. Purple air comes from the east. I said, well, what the heck is this? And then he said, well, it's a metaphor for everything good and happening uh, to China and to people mm-hmm. comes across the East China Sea um, and is purple. And purple is, is, is a very noble color in China as well. So I said, OK, wow, I had this big poster. I still have it. It's about two meters long. And I, I watched him for half an hour brushing with a big brush these four characters and during this time, I had the, I still get the goosebumps. I said, okay, this is my top wine if I ever make one. So I started thinking in 2016 <laughs> only. I yeah. found the right grapes. It's, yeah. it's a single vineyard adjacent to the Chateau. It's the oldest vineyard there. It's, it's now more than 12 years old. Mm. And uh, it's only four hectares, but we picked the finest grapes out of this vineyard and hence we, we we had the wine to make i mean we know there's a big market for, for fine bordeaux uh, in china that the, the chinese middle classes and above are happy to pay lots of money for them will yeah. they pay 150 pounds or, or it's equivalent in dollars or or or, or 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 chinese currency um for a chinese wine can you sell it 150 pound chinese wine <sighs> you would be surprised um but it's this is very very new because china was hooked on bordeaux in particular yeah. Um, and um, I've done a tour. I, I, I'll give you one example. I've done a tour to 28 cities prior to COVID, none smaller than 9 million people because Austria has 9 million people. So it was my condition. Uh, and we went to, to, to places uh, you have never heard the name, names of. Really With more than 9 of. million people in them. 9 million people minimum, yeah. 28 cities. It was three trips altogether. And um, on one of the trips, it was in, in Fujian province in Fuzhou, which is the tea province of China. Mm. I gave a, a speech to uh, a very rich group of people. I don't know if you call, call it oligarchs, but it was really, yeah. you could see from the cars they were driving that there was money. And at the end of my presentation, an old man gets up, had tears in his eyes. And he said, Mr. Moza, also in English, I was really, really happy about this. And he said... Today is a memorable day because it's the first day I'm going to start drinking wines from China. And he told us that he only used to drink wines from Australia at the time, not anymore, I'm I'm sure, (laughs) Uh, and from Bordeaux. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he said, no, your wines are as good as as anything from from outside. Of course, this is very patriotic. But this was, for me, a tipping point. Mm -hmm. And when I look at my sales figures, I can tell that our wines... The, the more expensive, the better for the Chinese market. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, tell us a, a little bit about working in China, because a number of projects, um, you know, I read the book Thirsty Dragon and projects involving foreign companies who've worked in China have ended very badly. I mean, w- what makes yours different? I mean, d- d- does working in China involve a different mindset, a different approach? 
Um, well, uh, quite frankly, as I told you a little bit earlier, the first 10 years, it was my learning curve. We both mm. made a lot of mistakes, mm. but, and the but is very important here. We, we kept staying together. So mm. we became friends is maybe too much, but we mm. came very, very close and we share the same vision because mm. in this famous phone conversation in 2015, Mr. Joe, Mr. Sun, the, 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 the CEO now, and myself, we, form, we, we formed our vision uh, for the Chateau, which at the time was completely crazy because mm -hmm. we said we want to, to make wines belonging in the, in the company of the world's mm -hmm. finest. Yeah. Uh, Bob Mondavi told me this because, you know, if mm -hmm. you want to get up in the morning uh, for a reason, then, you know, go big. Yeah? Go, yeah. Not big in the sense of volume, but go, go top. great. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and I, I was able to convince them. They, they thought, again, I was completely out of my mind, but uh, I think we've done it because in, in blind tastings around Europe, we, we get a lot of positive uh, feedback. We do a lot of benchmark with France, mm. with Italy, with Australia, mm. with other wines. And it shows that our wines, we must not be ashamed anymore, which mm. was the case maybe 20 years or 15 years ago. Mm. And how do you think the market's going to develop over the next 50 years in China? Are the Chinese going to drink more and more of their own wines, do you think, and less yes. from outside? China. China will always be a net importer like the US. So mm. export is, is basically, uh, if, if it gets to 10% one, one day, like, like in the US, we'll be very lucky. Mm. But uh, it, it'll, it'll, it'll rely on its own wines. That's why the Chinese wine industry has to make a lot of, a lot of um, much better wines for mm. the future. Mm. And uh, since there are so many people, and since China is in awe with European lifestyle, wine is mm. part of it, mm. they will be becoming the biggest wine drinking and wine consuming nation in the world sheer size yeah i mean how many billion is it it's 1.4 billion people yeah and uh what people don't know uh and people always underestimate china uh, we have about 350 million people middle class mm. versus the us is the next biggest with mm. 100 million mm. middle class always defined with sixty thousand dollar income mm. uh, in, in buying power <clears throat> and so this is this is coming so you could have three times the number of wine drinkers if they start to get interested in wine. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's spreading in the big cities. Of course, COVID did slow it down, but mm. um, it, it's coming. There's no mm. way. Mm. I want to ask you a little bit about you. I think people get a sense of what you're like. You're a very dynamic guy. But you once said that patience is not my strength. Um, uh, are you always looking to move on to something else? Or is that changing a bit as you get older, do you think? Um, <laughs> Uh, the statement is true, and it's a yes and no, mm. uh, because uh, I think um, I've learned from the Chinese. So I'm, I'm really a lucky person because I was born and raised in Europe, conservative as my parents were, mm. uh, which was good. Yeah, Latin and mm. Greek, all that mm. stuff. Then I went to California, Bob Mondavi spirit. Mm. We talked about it. And now is, is, is the last 15, 17 years. It's, it's the Chinese uh, um, sort of thinking and the Chinese uh, history a little bit. Mm. And they taught me patience. Mm. Because they said, Lens, wait. Mm. If it's good, it's going to come back mm. anyway. Mm. Um, but on the other side, um, I'm getting older and I don't want to waste time. So it's, it's you know, it's two hearts in my... <laughs> so yin and yang, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> Some, absolutely. Something like that. I mean, I noticed that, that you don't own a car. You hire one from time to time. You like driving fast on the autobahn. I know that, but you don't own a television. Is that part of a kind of wider philosophy of yours? I hate to waste time. Mm. Uh, the older I, I get... Uh, the more focused I get, and mm. therefore, um, well, television is, is is nice to watch a game sometimes. Mm. But my neighbors, they have you know Sky and everything, mm. so 
they they invite me to a, to a good Champions League match or something, and I still have my laptop. I, it's here and there, a little bit of Netflix. Uh, I have to confess, but. I, I, I declined to buy this big fat screen mm. um, because I would sit there and it would consume too much of my time. And the car thing, um, until I won't own a car until there's nitrogen in, in play because mm. uh, battery is not my thing either. Mm. So, and I don't need a car. My, my wife has two cars, so. Mm. <laughs> so there's a car in the family. She drives you around. Yeah, but, but absolutely, absolutely. So <laughs> she has a small mini. Uh, and, and she has a big uh, company car. She has a job in Germany, so she's yeah. happy with it. But I, I, I really decline yeah. on cars. I mean, you've got this very interesting experience that you've lived in Germany, you know, you've worked uh, in China, you've lived in the States, and you've had this connection with the States. But are there any other places in the world where you'd like to make wine? I know you're interested in Armenia and Georgia, I read somewhere. Would you like to make wine there? Have you got enough time? Well, uh, there is uh, projects, I'm sure there's projects in the pipe, but Armenia and Georgia have to wait because at the moment it's a little bit unsecure. And since mm -hmm. I have a, an assistant uh, brand manager for a new chapter, her name is Natya and she comes from Georgia and she was operating out of Georgia, but she left for Italy now because she said Mr. Putin is a little bit too close mm -hmm. uh, to her home in Tiflis. Mm. Uh, so I, this has to wait, but I just launched a new project uh, from Tokai. I'm mm. doing dry Tokai, dry for mint, <laughs> which I've been loving for my entire life. Mm. Uh, but it ex exists only, you know, professionally last 20 years. But I think I can contribute uh, to, to the region with my knowledge of blending of, of ideas about wine. Yeah. And that's what we're launching right now. And uh, my big dream is to do wines from Turkey. Yeah. From Turkey? Yes. Fantastic. From with the east or the west? Uh, well, all over. Uh, yeah. I, I know, uh, you know, the Kavakli dairy family. Yeah. And they are good people. I know the brothers. I know the mm. daughter, mm. daughters. And um, the, what I love in Turkey is 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 the history of wine making there, wine growing, mm. and their indigenous grapes. Because yeah. uh, you know, it's it's nice to have Cabernet Sauvignon to play with, and Boyatskere and Narince and all that yeah. stuff. That's what I'm really... I like it yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, oh, well, I look forward to tasting those. That would be fantastic when yeah. you do that. I mean, we've heard how busy your life is. I just wonder, I mean, how do you get away from wine? It's not watching Netflix. It's not watching television. I know you keep fit, don't you? I mean, you, 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 you swim, don't you? And I think you go to the gym and you run. Um, is that your main interest outside wine, staying fit and young? No, no. I, I'm, 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 uh, well, when it comes to wine, I don't drink wine every second day. This mm -hmm. is out of respect because I saw too many friends drinking too much. And mm -hmm. this is this is uh, a thing. And it keeps me fit as well. Mm -hmm. um, that's number one. And number two, uh, I have a lot of other interests, um, be it culture, be it traveling, mm -hmm. be it whatever. But basically being with friends and, and, and talking about what what's what's moving us. This is something I really like. And there, a good glass of wine always helps. But every other day, right? Yes, I think that's a good tip. That's why you've stayed so young. I mean, you look amazing for somebody who's 85 years old. No, I'm joking. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> anyway, Lenz, it's been fascinating to chat to you. Good luck with new chapter, Grunewald Lina. I think it's great that, that Grunewald Lina is going to have a really important champion out there in the marketplace selling these wines and saying, hey, we, we, we deserve to be at the top table. Yeah. Thank you. Thank and you I hope to, hope to see you soon, whether in Austria or in the London or somewhere else. Oh anyway. boy, I'll be traveling to London and we'll see each other. I'm, I'm Fantastic. Sure. Thanks for being on the podcast. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. -bye. I love Lentz's energy and passion. 
Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Steve Browett from Fine Wine Dealers Far Vintners. See you then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at Tim Atkin MW. See you next week.